Well, good morning. Um, as I said, we're continuing Brian's series on pure joy this morning. Um, and as I open services this morning, I think it's a little difficult. Uh, Brian and I were talking through the week, um, and at one point on this weekend, he said, I don't know, man, can we talk about joy on a weekend where uh, it seems like we don't have words for it, um, where people are not experiencing joy? And uh, as we kind of prayed and thought about it, I, I think uh, we're going to go forward as we can. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3. And perhaps if you're one of those people uh, that needs some time just to think and drift, if you have your Bible open and you're drifting from what I'm saying, you'll at least be reading some scripture instead of your news feed. Uh, or your email, which this would be maybe that sacred time to get away from those two things. Um, but I, I do want to just pause again and mention that there's uh, a lot of hurt, a lot of sorrow, a lot of loss, um, not only with the fires, but also with the, the shooting. And it's one um, that has followed some other shootings, as we mentioned last week, and as we've uh, seen as a country over the past um, year, it seems like this is just something that we're going to have to get used to, and that doesn't sound like something I want to get used to. And there's a lot of questions and things going on, and I think as people of, uh, of God, people who claim Christ, um, what Paul has to say today may actually be relevant to this conversation. It may seem hard to hear the message, so I encourage you to lean in for this time. I love uh, adventures. I love going on adventures. One of the adventures I went on recently was to go to Mount Baldy and do a hike last year up there. I had heard about the hike. It's kind of one of those ones that's really strenuous and one that is pretty fulfilling. If you haven't done a hike in California, Mount Baldy is, is on the list. Um, it's got to be 10,000 feet of elevation. And I love adventures like this because you know, get to the top, and you just have this moment of joy when you get to the summit, when you accomplish the goal of getting up there. And I had done some research just a little bit. I guesstimated how long it was going to take me to get to the top. And so I texted Janelle and said, this is how long you can expect me to be out of communication because there's not good cell service hiking up the mountain. And I was doing it alone as one of the guys coming down the mountain said. He said, are you stupid? Why are you out here alone? Um, but I just, I love being out on mountains alone, uh, getting off the ski lift at my favorite ski area in Park City and looking down over the bowl as I ski down and drop into um, just the amazingness and the joy that it brings or getting that perfect picture uh, at Zion Canyon hiking with the youth group. I just, I love the experience because at some point along the way, and I ex definitely had this experience at Mount Baldy. As I'm taking the deep breath at altitude like 9,000 or 9,500, and I'm just trying to make it, and I'm like, am I going to get there? Am I lost? Have I gone the wrong direction, you know? And at the top, though, as you look out and you find the plaque or whatever that tells you you've reached your destination, you feel found. You go from feeling lost to feeling found. Completing that goal, getting that victory pose. So this morning, as we ponder joy, I'm curious, if I find it on the mountaintop, where do you find joy? 
Ponder that question for just a moment. Is there a place you can think of, an adventure that you've been on? Who are the people that are with you when you go and you find joy? Is it a parent, a sibling, a son or daughter, a close friend? So why don't you go ahead, if you have somebody right next to you or turn to the pew behind you, share where do you find joy? Go ahead and share with someone next to you. Well, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you. In fact, it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have confidence and reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, and as righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The reading of God's word. As I uh, don't know about you, I was struck the way that Paul begins chapter 3 here with this repetition. He says, I'm saying rejoice in the Lord. It's not hard for me to say this same thing. And, and my favorite passage is coming up in Brian's series in chapter 4 where he says the same thing one more time. Rejoice in the Lord. You know those moments when you find yourself saying the same thing over and over again? It's like people aren't hearing you or getting it. You know, I, but I think Paul, like many of our repetitions, sometimes is trying to use some things like a safeguard. Like when I say I love you to my wife every morning, it's a safeguard for me. And so when he's repeating this, rejoice in the Lord, it protects us from rejoicing in the wrong things. 
I was thinking about this story of Jesus and his followers. He was there with about 72 of them. And they had seen him do all these kind of miracles, heal sick people. And he was preaching about this kingdom, the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God's presence coming and being an imminent reality. And so he brings them together, all 72 of them. And he identifies some towns that he was going to go and preach and teach in. And he said, go to them before me, kind of prepare the way. This is what he told them. The harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are a few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus told them to go without a wallet or a bag or even sandals. And they were to go into these homes and give a blessing of peace. And if they were not welcomed, then they were even to go out into the middle of the courtyard of the town and shake off the dust off their, even, off their feet as a sign against that town. So the 72 go out and they do this, and they heal sick, they cast out demons, and they come back saying, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. And Jesus responds by saying, I, I saw that accuser Satan fall from heaven, and I've given you power and authority, great power. But don't rejoice that the evil spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We need that safeguard because even good things can become the focus of our joy rather than the pure joy of rejoicing in the Lord. Just like those 72 followers, we can get caught up rejoicing and thinking that our joy is found in our achievements for God. The good works that we do, our understanding of God and spirituality. And Paul gives us an example of this kind of joy finding um, when he talks about his next bit in, in uh, Philippians about circumcision. And um, I don't have a PowerPoint for circumcision. Good reasons for that. It's not the number one Sunday uh, sermon topic. And as you can see, Brian is absent as, as the circumcision Sunday comes around. But it's very important that we don't just skip on by this kind of, you know, whatever we think about circumcision. Um, because people are always seeking spiritual security. They're always looking to know with certainty that they're okay with God. Janelle and I um, were recently given at our baby shower, which we were just, you know, blessed beyond measure by all of you and by family and, and friends. Um, but we got a lot of these little blankets, and, and they're called security blankets. I was reading it on the tags. Because sometimes I'm just like, I don't know what this is. Is this a dress? Is this a blanket? Is this, I don't know. Anyway, um, so this one had a tag, and it says security blanket. And, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, you know. Um, I used to sing a song as growing up, and I told Jamie I was going to sing a song. So this is how the song goes. My rock, Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my rock. I am not afraid, I am not afraid. And then it would go on and had a bunch of different things that Jesus was for me, right? And uh, how many of you sang that song as a child? Here, Jamie's got his hand up. He knows the song. Okay. There was a verse called, Jesus is my comforter. And I, as a child, was so weirded out because I just was like, why is Jesus a blanket? Um, why is Jesus a blanket? But I needed a blanket that was heavy enough, and my mom always called them comforters to help me fall asleep at night. I wanted something. I still, to, the, to this day, like my bedroom cold enough that I can have a heavy-duty blanket because it makes me feel secure. 
It helps me feel safe. And so, I mean, I'm, I guess that's the point of the baby's security blankets, right? Um, but I was always mystified that Jesus was this blanket, and I know he, he's a comforter in another way. But, um, but circumcision, I want you to imagine that in some ways is what Paul is mentioning in this list of his qualifications— about being a Hebrew of Hebrew. There's a list of there of qualifications. And he mentions a bunch of things, one of them being circumcision, are really related to religious and spiritual security. They're like a security blanket. They helped people feel and know that their joy was secure, that their relationship with God was secure. Circumcision was the sign of a promise given to Abraham. It was how Abraham and his children and descendants would kind of work and behave, commit to living into what God had promised for them. And uh, there were much, many more laws that were given to Moses um, to help them understand how to be in right relationship. And circumcision was part of these rules. And so Paul references throughout this passage the righteousness that comes by faith in contrast with righteousness that comes by our own ability to keep these laws, to keep um, in line with these things these religious traditions. And I, as I mentioned righteousness, and I've read it several times in this passage this morning, I'm wondering if maybe it's one of those church words that we just kind of read through quickly and we kind of get it, but maybe we don't really let the implications of the word fall on us. Righteousness could be summed up as being in right relationship. God is righteous because God is always in right relationship. To be a righteous person is to always act in right relationship with another person. And so we have kind of the most obvious one would be marriage. The marriage covenant between two people is to act in right relationship. To be faithful means that you're always acting in right relationship with that other person. And you might have a friend who does this with you. But it doesn't mean that this person always avoids punishment or discipline. There are times where if you act outside, to be righteous means that I need to punish or discipline. I need to let you know there's consequences to your actions. As you drive on the road, the United States has laws about how you're to act in right relationship with other drivers on the, on the uh, freeways and on the roads. Uh, Pasadena and Glendale love to have right relationship about if, where you park your car. And if you are outside of the violation, the street sweeper will let you know that you are not acting in right relationship with the city of Glendale or Pasadena. I know myself from personal experience. And so we have these things. We have these ways to be righteous, these right relationship kind of ideas. And when it comes to uh, even our church family, when I act in right relationship to you, then it's counted to me as righteousness. And that's what Paul is, is referring back to here is Abraham was told that even though he was old, he was about 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. And his wife Sarah was old, beyond childbearing years, we're told. And they were told that a promised child would be born. And through this descendants of Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And it says that Abraham trusted God, or believed God, as some of our English translations put it. And it was credited to him as being in right relationship with God. Righteousness. It wasn't that circumcision got him to be righteous. It wasn't the correct prayers or the day of the week that he worshipped 
or the songs that he sang or how he sang them or the understanding of God at the time that Abraham had. But it was a journey of trust. And that journey wasn't always clean. You go back and read Genesis 12 and following. uh, Sometimes Abraham tried to do it on his own. And it got messy. There were a lot of thorns amongst the roses. And so as Paul is continuing about righteousness, he references these people who are calling them to do this circumcision, to put their hope in circumcision. And he calls these people evildoers and dogs. And I know there are many dog lovers here. Um, We treat our dogs a lot better than humans have been treated in years past. But this is not a compliment from Paul that they're dogs, okay? Um, That was not a compliment for the day. And and as Paul is referencing these these people, scholars would point and say that they were probably what they now call Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians who were following after Paul, teaching that people needed to not just become followers of Jesus, but in order to be a follower of Jesus, you had to become a Jew. You had to convert to Judaism. And so, guys, that meant one of the important things was circumcision. And I've often heard these Judaizers criticized as being really, really bad guys. They wanted to make it really hard for Christians, for Gentiles to become Christians, for people who weren't of Jewish heritage to become Christians. And that's their whole purpose. They were just, they were just kind of wanting it to keep it a Jewish sect. But I'm not so sure that they're as bad as we think. I wonder if they were coming and they were teaching people that, to, you know what, I want you to have joy. I want you to know that you're saved. I want you to know with certainty that God loves you. And this is how to do it. Here's some traditions that we have. Here's some things, circumcision being one of them. This heritage of of the Jewish people. And I'm not so sure it was from such bad motives. I think they wanted to give people a security blanket. Because I find myself wanting that so often, too. I just want the quick answer. I want to know for certain that I'm safe, that my joy is, is grounded. So Paul, he says, okay, I'll, I'll take these Judaizers on. He, he says, I'm, I'm better than the best Judaizer. Look at what I've got. I've got the Lamborghini of religious instruction. I've got the big house on the hill of Hebrew heritage. I've got the privilege of the best studying and the best teachers. And elsewhere we know he names those teachers even. He knows the most theology, and he names his theological camp being a Pharisee. Um, and so in some ways, he's, he's identifying that he's made it to the top of the summit. He's climbed the ladder of success when it comes to the Jewish religious scale. But he says, you know what? All of those things, all of my heritage, all of the things that I thought and rooted my joy and security in, I count as garbage. They are in the trash to me, and you might need to fill in a better, more stronger English term than just the word garbage. It's worthless compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. And I think as Americans, we we have this similar tendencies. We've been shaped by a mental model, a way that we see the world um, that says independence is better than dependence, that bigger is always better that being a self-made person who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and starts their own company is the ideal person, an entrepreneur. Politic, uh, politics and the corporate world, even social media, especially here, I think, in L.A. with the entertainment industry, we really, really idolize the story 
of someone rising from humble beginnings and rising to the top, the top of the ladder, top of the mountain, who's got it all, or the revolutionary who comes from nothing and changes the whole world. And I think Paul would challenge that expectation of bringing that into our Christian faith as well. He would say that all of those things that were to my benefit, all those things that made me a somebody who put me at the top, where I found my joy and identity in, I've lost them all for Christ's sake. Our right relationship or righteousness with God is not based on our merits. It's based on faith. I love how one of the theologians that I was reading as he was explaining this idea of faith put it this way. Faith is not an alternative way of earning God's favor. Faith is the opposite of merit. It's an admission that I cannot earn God's approval, but can only accept God's free offer of forgiveness, grace, and love. And so as I was kind of summarizing some of these things, I put this down. Faith, then, is not about having all the right ideas about God and Jesus or saying and thinking the correct phrases, but it is about actively choosing to trust and to surrender ourselves to Christ. So what have you been finding your joy and security in? What maybe is a security blanket for you, like the Judaizers had circumcision that you've based your standing before God on? What are the things you value so much that Christ needs to surpass, that you might need to throw out in the garbage can, as it were? Um, As Paul continues in the passage, he says, I want to know Christ. And he uses this word know, which is somewhat difficult to grasp exactly what he's meaning, because the word can mean a lot of different things. Um, One of the ways that it has meaning is even in regard to the personal uh, sexual intimacy between a couple. As the husband knows his wife in the Old Testament, we might read that phrase, that turn of phrase. It's the same concept of knowing. And so as Paul, he's, he's writing about oneness with Christ. It's an intimate oneness with Christ. And as I try and kind of define things, I wanted to model for you, as you read this passage, you might notice that he put in our English translation, there's a dash. It's like Paul is saying something. I want to know Christ. And then it's like, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his suffering. It's like he interrupts his own thought here. And so as you read a passage of scripture and you have some questions like, Paul, what do you mean to know Christ? What does it mean to have this intimate oneness with Christ? I don't, I don't fully grasp what you're saying here. Look at how Paul defines it as he interrupts his own thought and says, to know the power of Christ's resurrection, the participation in his suffering and becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection, a promise of being resurrected from the dead. And so uh, for Justin's sake, I did three Ps, alliteration here, three Ps of power, participation, and promise. I think this is what knowing Jesus means. Being found in Jesus is an intimate oneness with Christ by which we experience great power. And Brian has been kind of harping on this. I think it's a great one because um, as I think about my own life, it's a journey, right? I don't automatically quit sinning the moment I become a Christian. But with great power from God, I don't longer struggle with the same sins I did 10 years ago. And I think what Brian is, is saying when he says, you know, as Christian people, 
the hope is that we're getting better. We're struggling with different things. We're working towards a different future. We're not struggling with the same sin 10 years from now that we're struggling with today. There's power and freedom that we're set free from those things. And power and participation work together uh, in the examples that Paul uses in the verses before the section that we just read. If you don't have something better to do this afternoon, go back and read the whole letter of Philippians all the way through in one sitting. It should only take you about 15, 20 minutes. And the verses right before this section in chapter 3, he mentions two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is one who almost dies in serving uh, Paul and serving the the cause of Christ. And he lives self-sacrificially, and Paul explains that to them. Um, He was one of their own who they sent to Paul to help them. And so participation means that we die to our own selfish desires, to the things that we see as climbing up the ladder, in order to participate, as we read in chapter 2 of Jesus' example, of emptying ourselves and becoming obedient even to death. This intimate oneness, though, continues with promise. It means that we also live with an expectant hope of the promise that one day all will be made right. We talk about this with the kingdom of God being an already and not yet experience of God's presence in the world. So the power of the resurrection in our lives, as I mentioned, to not struggle with the same sin 10 years from now that we do today is the promise of power and the, and the already experience of God's kingdom. The promise is kind of the not yet experience of the kingdom of God. That at one day, everything will be made right. That yes, now we experience evil and suffering. But even in the midst of this, God is present. And in the end, will make us, by his gift, his grace, and his love, resurrected. And, and I think that thought is something we can take with us even in this moment as we talk about things like the borderline shooting and other shootings that have happened in recent time, as well as even as we talk about the fires and rebuilding of homes. That yes, there's power today, but we're still experiencing sorrow, and we're not sure what to do with all of that. But we know we have a promise, we have a hope, and it doesn't mean that God intended these things to happen. But we know that ultimately one day God will make the things that are not right now, right one day. And I think as Paul does in this passage, he uses this turn of phrase as he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. He says, somehow, that I might somehow attain to the resurrection. He's not sure, it seems like. Maybe he's expressing doubt. But I, as I read it, I realize that maybe it's not about doubt. Maybe he's being humble. He's not expressing doubt about the final resurrection in the other teachings of Paul. He knows there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Or he's not doubting that God is going to raise him, that he's one of the ones acceptable to God. But Paul is using that phrase to model humility for us. And I wonder if our world needs more people who are that way, humble, that have confidence in the promise of God and the power in, his li- in our life, but who participate in that emptying and that humility that Christ shows us. That as we get on public uh, forums like social media or we engage in civic conversations about um, gun violence and about forestry and fires and rebuilding, that we model humility. Because you see, pure joy is sourced in Jesus. 
and it enabled a man who was in prison, who eventually was beheaded and killed after being locked up in multiple cities for years at a time. He had a lot to complain about, as Brian has challenged us uh, this month, to not be complainers, because Paul had reasons to, and yet he gives us a safeguard to rejoice in the Lord. And I believe it's because he had the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself and became like a servant. Being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a picture from Zion, and I love mountaintops, as I said. I love achieving, achieving something great. Um, but pure joy is not found on the mountaintops I summit or the life goals I achieve. Fred Craddock puts it this way. What Paul might be saying here is that Christ surpasses everything of worth to me. We're not on a path of self-improvement or upward mobility religiously. If that were the case, then we should listen to the Judaizers, for there is much to gain in what they offer. But if the in-Christ mind prevails then we count opportunities to surpass as nothing. Giving ourselves up to God is total trust. Having no claims, seeking no advantage, but in service to one another, leaving our status before God entirely in God's hands. So pure joy comes when I am found in Christ and trust him enough to live self-sacrificially. The milestones set before us, maybe by our culture, are some of these. I just wrote them down. You know, graduating high school, going to college, getting married, having children, buying a house, retiring early, lots of money in our 401k, traveling the world. All of these set us up to believe that those are the achievements, that in those achievements and dreams is where our happiness will be secure. And I think some of us have allowed that to sleep, uh, to sneak into our our church, into our way of, of being Christians. And we see similar milestones and traditions as a security blanket. That if we simply say the right things or go to the right church or sing the right songs, follow the right, correct religious rules, then I'll be secure and joyful. But pure joy is found in the losing, in the surrender, in the self-sacrifice. The power of your joy is the resurrected power of Christ in you. Your joy is maintained by a participation in Christ's sufferings and death. And your joy is full of hope because of the promise of Christ's return. So don't hold on to the wrong security blanket. Let Jesus be your comforter. As the worship team comes up to lead us in a final song, I, I challenge you this week to consider the repeated safeguard from Paul to rejoice in the Lord. So spend just a few moments while we sing this song before our sending and ask this question. What might it look like for Christ to surpass those things you value most in your life? Let's uh, stand and sing together.